Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13, and then Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This is God's word. Thank you, Susan. You know, this disruption these past weeks has created an opportunity. I've been saying that everywhere I've gone. We are trying to take advantage of that opportunity uh, to implement some new habits or personal liturgies, if you would prefer, that we would commit to practicing together as a church to better love God and others. James K.A. Smith, who's had a profound impact on my life, has written a book which you you should absolutely read. It's called You Are What You Love. And his thesis is that your life follows your heart. Your life takes shape around the pursuit of whatever your heart desires and loves as ultimate. And your loves, he goes on to say, are formed by your habits, not the other way around. And that's the reorienting idea. It's why you should read the book, because it seems counterintuitive to say that our loves are formed by our habits. And so your life follows your heart, but what Jamie Smith says is that your heart follows your body. I can give you numerous illustrations, but maybe just this one would be helpful to you. If I asked you what letter is to the left of the F on a keyboard, the answer might not immediately come to you, and you probably will need to begin to air type on an imaginary keyboard uh, to figure it out, Uh, but eventually you will because what's fascinating is your fingers know what your mind doesn't. You know that D is in fact to the left of F, and you know it so instinctively through just the repetitive practice of typing that you find the D without even thinking about where it is. And so you learn from that that the most powerful, most formative habits in your life are the ones that you don't even think about. And so Jamie Smith contends that our loves and desires are trained in the exact same way as I just described in that illustration. He, and he made a believer out of me, which is why I've, I, I come back to the book so often. He says, uh, the acts of love go before the feelings of love. And we, we said that last week, and that's kind of where we want to begin again this week, that the acts of love go before the feelings of love. And so if you want to love God and love others more, you don't wait around to feel it. You have to engage in acts of love that shape your heart's desires away from other things and towards God and towards neighbor properly. Change, then, at the heart level, which is where real change happens, is not caused by information download, but by formation through new practices that shape new desires and loves in your heart and then aim your life in the right direction. 
in this case, toward God and toward neighbor in love. That's our premise for this series and for adopting what we're calling our common rule, these four daily, and eventually we'll get to the four weekly practices that we're desiring to implement together as a church. Last week was embracing love for God through the habit of kneeling prayer three times a day. I've been praying for you this week, and I hope that in all of the successes and failures uh, that you found, um, some really good lessons learned in attempting to do that. But today, our second daily habit is now embracing neighbor love. So last week was embracing love for God. This is embracing love for neighbor through a daily habit of sharing one meal every day with others. One meal with others. And so from these texts that we've read, we just want to do the same thing we did last week. Talk about the what, the why, and the how of that simple practice. One meal with others. What, why, and how, or the mechanics and the motivation and ultimately the motor, the power to really um, follow Jesus in his way here. So let's just walk through these texts. First, talking about what exactly it is we're attempting to do with this habit that I've described to you this morning. It begins with an observation of how central the table was to Jesus's ministry. And in fact, how important the image of the table and of a meal is throughout the entire Bible. And so let's look at the big picture. Let's zoom out and look at the big picture throughout all of the scripture first. For example, Isaiah 25, which was our call to worship there, the prophet said that God's salvation would culminate in a great feast, so great that it would make Thanksgiving dinner look like saltine crackers and bologna. And then, if you fast forward all the way to the end of the Bible, in Revelation, heaven there is pictured using pretty much the same language as a wedding feast. And if you use those two passages as bookends, then the ministry of Jesus that happens in between them begins to make more sense. On the night of his crucifixion, he instituted a ritual meal with his disciples that was to be the centerpiece of the church's life and mission. And so the table, what we call the Lord's Supper, is the church's center of gravity. It's so important. Beyond even that, it would not be an overstatement to say that the kingdom came and comes through the table. Jesus had a ministry of meals. You see that in both Matthew 9 and Luke 15, both those passages, and in so many other places in the gospel that you really can't ignore it. And the significance might easily be lost on us, but in that day, for those people, to eat together was an offer of friendship. And so to say, let's eat, meant let's be friends, which is what got the religious folks so upset, but we'll come back to that in just a minute. So when we talk about one meal with others, the goal is community, neighbor love, friendship. Romans 15, 7 says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's the goal. But the strategy, the trellis, is a meal. One meal every day with others. Listen to Justin Early in the book that we based this sermon series off of. He says this, in, our, in general, our culture puts busy schedules at the center of life and then tries to fit meals in around them. This is different from putting the table at the center and prioritizing our schedules around that. This is a way of neighbor love. Prioritizing relationships over personal interests and 
schedules and calendars, a careful observation of our eating habits would highlight how dehumanizing our way of life really is. It's really startling to me, in fact, as I begin to think about it. We treat busy schedules as the necessity and a meal with family or friends as a luxury. We approach food as simply fuel, which would mean that our bodies are mere machines. And so to commit to sharing one meal with others every day would require us to sync schedules and plan menus or agree on which restaurant to meet at, all of which take time and energy that is in such demand. I mean, this would instead demand that we rearrange the rest of our lives around this practice, which is exactly the point. We need some kind of spiritual habit to help us embrace not only our own limits, but also the gift that others are and to honor them with our time and our attention. One meal with others every day. And so breakfast or lunch with a friend or a FaceTime appointment over a meal at your desk at work, but for the sake of relationship and not work, or if you're single, I've, I've talked to a number of you already this week. It's obviously a hard thing. So I want to say, don't turn it into a legalistic rule. Have fun. Experiment with this. But for single people who this might be hard for, I don't, some ideas. Grab some coworkers and start having lunch together at the office or get out of the office and do that. Get to know your neighbors and have dinner together regularly. Maybe, maybe it's a meal at the same restaurant from time to time on the same night of the week to build relationships with the servers and the other patrons who tend to be at those places at the same time week after week and then just inviting conversation. Again, the point is not to turn this into a legalistic rule that must be followed, but to make it a trellis upon which the vine of neighbor love can grow. But let me make one specific application before I move on to the next point, and that is to the family meal. Uh, because we are, uh, we are a church that is largely made up of families with children. And, and so I think there's special emphasis that needs to be made to that particular practice. The family meal is the, ba- the basic building block of human society. It's where you learn about relationships. It's where you learn to love others. And one of the highest predictors of a child's success, everybody says this, in adulthood is whether their families regularly had meals together. Because think about it. When you have a family meal, the kids come out of their rooms and everybody is together in the same space. Maybe that might be the only time in the day that's the case. You serve one another. You share. You clean up after one another. You learn to listen and not interrupt and how to have conversation. You fight and you forgive. You laugh. You celebrate one another. You make fun. You belong. All of that happens in the simple act of sharing a family meal. It's a place of formation. And really, all tables are, if you approach them as such. And that's what I'm asking you to consider beginning to do. One meal with others as a daily habit of being formed in neighbor love and of forming in others' neighbor love. Secondly, if that's what we're attempting to do with this habit, why? What is the motivation? What's behind it? And it may seem simple, but it really is a radical thing to do, to commit to one meal a day with others, as we're suggesting, as a means of neighbor love. And so let's get a little closer to the text now, if you'll go there with me. And notice that the context of both of these passages is obviously 
deeply fractured relationship that is, exists between the two groups that are in both places and really show up everywhere in the Gospels, the tax collectors and sinners on the one side and the Pharisees on the other. And the dynamic very, very clearly mirrors what, what we see in our own culture today. It really is in more profound ways today than may have, may have been the case uh, in Jesus' day. Uh, between 1975 and 2000, so that was some time ago, but still relevant, I think, the average number of times people reported entertaining in their homes over that span of 25 years fell by nearly half. Uh, from 15 times uh, in 1975 to 8 times uh, a year in, 19, in 2000. And that decline has continued over the last 20 years. We don't have friends over for dinner anymore. And this is a, larger, a part of a larger trend that Harvard social scientist Robert Putnam identified, again, almost 25 years ago now. He wrote an article that really uh, is a really well-known and famous article called Bowling Alone, chronicling how there were more bowlers in 1999 when he wrote than ever before, but fewer bowling leagues because people were still taking up you know, the fun of bowling, but they were no longer doing it with one another. And the book is really not about bowling. It's about the decline in involvement in social organizations like the PTA and Kiwanis and fan clubs and even churches that has continued to decline, particularly in our day as technology has increased. What's happened, the correlation is, is that our tech, as our technology has increased, so has our isolation from one another. We are hyper-connected and disconnected at the same time, so that over 50% of people confess that chronic loneliness is a fundamental challenge they struggle with. And research suggests that one lonely day exacts roughly the same toll on the body as smoking an entire pack of cigarettes. It's a public health crisis. Now, you begin to think about this and you begin to see that this really is the case, that as our traditional community attachments have begun to fray, as was being reported all the way back 20 years ago, new technologies have created new kinds of communities linking people across vast distances. So Yuval Levin, for example, has written about this. He says this, the internet embodies the kind of society that we are in the process of becoming. It is decentralized, personalized, and individualized. It is well-suited for chosen engagement and the creation of broad but shallow social networks, but poorly suited to reinforcing unchosen obligations and deep relational ties. Now, that quote comes from his book, The Fractured Republic, which describes the way that technology is continually pulling us farther apart from one another into increasingly polarized political and social groups. Here's the way he describes the results. He says... We have done more than change the structures of institutions and relationships. We have altered the shape of our lives and souls. We have set loose a scourge of loneliness and isolation that we are still afraid to acknowledge as the distinct social dysfunction of our age of individualism. Those are powerful words. And he's not a theologian, and he's not commenting on the Bible, but we could say the Bible says sin does just that. It alienates it is a centrifugal force. It divides us and keeps us apart from one another, as was the case with the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees here. Religion, which we also see, adds 
gas to the fire by so clearly dividing up the good and the bad, the healthy and the sick, to borrow the language here in Matthew 9. But Christianity is a counter-movement of grace. It is a kingdom of grace and love, and grace is a centripetal force. It brings people together, all different kinds of people, race and gender and social standing and so forth, under the banner of the true king. And so in the Gospels, the kingdom of grace, which was coming into the world through Jesus, was most powerfully, most profoundly, most clearly coming at the table of Jesus. Again, in the ancient world, you practiced neighbor love at the table. And it's what we see Jesus doing in both of these passages in Matthew 9 and Luke 15. The controversy that arises, arises around the table. Because the table is such a powerful instrument of God's kingdom. Let me say it this way to you. A simple meal with a friend is a sharpened gospel weapon. People ask me all the time, what can I do in the church? And they typically are asking if there's a Bible study they can teach or some ministry that they can lead. But I want to say this to all of you. If you want to be on the front line of the kingdom's advance in the world, do you want that? Do you want to be on the front line of the kingdom's advance in the world? Have a ministry of meals. It's also an evangelistic strategy. I mean, look at the text in Matthew 9. It's the story of Matthew's conversion. He responds to Jesus' invitation to be his disciple, and his immediate instinct is to have a dinner party and invite all of his friends and introduce them to Jesus too. And it says there in verse 10, Behold, I love that, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came. Don't you love that? Don't you wish that would be said of our church and of our dinner parties and of our Christmas parties and so forth? That behold, many tax collectors and sinners came because they knew it was a friendly place for such people. Rosaria Butterfield has written about the power of hospitality like this because it was the way that she came to faith. She was an atheist, lesbian college professor in New England who was eventually converted and is now in full-time vocational ministry because a pastor and his family kept inviting her to dinner. Ken Myers argues that secularism is not a conclusion, but more so a mood, and therefore it cannot be disrupted with an argument. Uh, It has to be disrupted with a presence. That's just another way of saying that evangelism has to begin with relationship, and relationships often begin with meals together. And so the work of the kingdom begins at the table. But lastly, let me finish And let's talk about how, let's talk about the motor, let's talk about where the energy and the motivation, the motor, where the motor running inside of you, uh, where where it is and and where this energy comes from to live as we're trying to describe here. And that's really what these two passages are about. And so let's get even closer now into what, what we learn and what Jesus is teaching us here by example in Matthew 9 and Luke 15. The power of Jesus's table was demonstrated in who was invited. The Pharisees asked in Matthew 9, verse 11, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because their world was like ours in many ways. There were the haves and the have-nots, clearly distinguished, the insiders and the outsiders, the righteous and the sinners. And righteousness was all about following the rules and keeping yourself from being contaminated by others' sin. And so there were very strict rules about who could eat with who in the ancient world and so forth. Because, again, a meal for them was a very sacred thing. It was more than a meal. 
And then along came Jesus, and he blew the whole thing up to show that there was a different way to relate to God than on the basis of your moral record. Jesus said it like this in verse 13, I have come for sinners, not the righteous, because only those who know that they are not righteous on their own, only those who know that salvation is by grace and not works, only those can be rightly related to God in the end. This is the good news that Jesus was bringing, that God is a friend of sinners. And sinners toasted that good news. The righteous scoffed. Because sinners know they need grace, but the righteous don't, and that's their disadvantage. And this is what Luke 15 is all about as well. The chapter there contains the most famous of Jesus' stories, the parable of the prodigal son. And the lesson in that story is that failure doesn't keep God from loving you, and success and being good doesn't cause God to love you. God doesn't love us because of anything that we do. He loves us because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But God doesn't love us simply because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He sent Jesus into the world because he loves us. It's all grace. And all of that there in that story is powerfully illustrated. Uh, it's, it's one of the most profound places in all of our scriptures. But have you ever thought about the fact that at the center of that wonderful story that we all love so much is a meal, a feast, like the feast in Isaiah chapter 25, and the feast in Revelation chapter 19. In fact, the whole chapter was an explanation not only of Jesus' grace, which was so confounding to the religious folks, but the way that grace was embodied at the table. Listen again to the verses there in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, which are the reason why he gives the parable. It says, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so the lesson there in Luke 15 could be put very simply like this. We might hear about grace in a sermon, but we really learn it over food. Thus, the power of meals. You see, the neighbor love that Jesus modeled and that he commanded of us is friendship that goes beyond our group to those on the other side of the aisle, to people who don't share our values and beliefs, even to those we would call our enemies. And the power to love others like that is to know and to live from the love of God towards you. The righteous, those that think God loves them because they're good and right all on their own, they tend to exclude and treat others with contempt and keep their distance and not share meals with those they deem unacceptable. Sinners, sinners, those who know that God's love is sheer grace, sinners can't help but want to celebrate that grace with other sinners. And that's what you see going on in Jesus' ministry. Sinners who are so in wonder of God's love for them in Jesus that want to do all they can to celebrate the grace that he shows with other undeserving but loved sinners as well. And listen, what better way to do that than over a good meal? One meal with others as an act of neighbor love for the sake of the kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're after. Pray with me, would you? And so, Father, thank you 
uh, for this vivid imagery that you've given to us in your word of your desire to be with us and to dwell with us and to eat with us. Thank you for the hope that uh, this world is headed towards the day when we will do just that, when we will sit down at your table and Jesus himself, the risen, exalted Lord of glory, will serve us and we will eat and drink and finally find our heart's satisfaction and joy. And so what, what a privilege then to go through this world inviting as many people to that great feast, to that great table by inviting them to our table. Would you work in us to overcome our self-righteousness and our selfishness of trying to keep ourselves insulated and isolated and away from people and rather to give, to enlarge our hearts with your love so that in the overflowing love that, that you've shown to us, that we would invite people into our lives, people who are different than us into our lives, people in crisis and in need, that we would invite them into our lives by inviting them to our table. I pray for family dinners. I pray for friends gathering uh, at restaurants once this is all over or uh, whatever ways we can in these days when, we're, when this is so challenging. Uh, I pray for those times that they would be sharpened gospel instruments. Uh, that they would that they would be of the very experience of grace that would change our hearts and melt us. Uh, this is the opportunity that we have, but we need your spirit to work in us uh, toward uh, this great goal that you've given to us. And so, Father, uh, we give you glory, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What a great song. The hope of that ultimate feast that's, that still awaits us in heaven. Uh, brings a certain practice back into the present of our lives that we feast even now together as we anticipate the great feast and we invite others to join us. Now, I realize how difficult this is given the fact that we're still in this time of social distancing, so don't be too hard on yourself. But, but begin to dream about what it might look like for you to have a ministry of meals and know uh, that God promises to be with you by His Spirit uh, so that uh, those times that you have together would be something more, something more sacred, something more real, more powerful than just having food with one another. But the communion you might experience would be a communion not only between, the t- between those of you eating, but between you and God himself. That's the promise. And so go uh, into the world being sent now uh, to that great responsibility of neighbor love through sharing meals together and go with this promise the words of this benediction which is not our normal benediction but i think one that's fitting uh, for this series over the next few weeks hear these words now may the god of peace who brought again from the dead our lord jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.